Greetings, 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 and welcome to another edition of Cat's Corner, the podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Cat Cat Okaday. Thank you for tuning in. So the music that you heard, the snippet that you heard at the beginning of this episode is from the opera that I directed. I'm very excited about it. Um, it's called Songs from the Upward. The Lives and Death of Isabel Urbanhart, and it was composed by Mazzi Mazzoli. And so there's a story, of course, as to how I became a stage director for an opera. So tuck in. It's going to be fun. Uh, let's see, where to begin? I think the best place to begin is with a reminder. I identify as a cultural architect, which means that for me, my focus being primarily Blackness, global Black, diasporic Black, all the Blacks, capital B Black, I am interested in getting the story to the finish line, whatever the story is. And as a cultural architect, my primary goal is the is the story, is the message. How I go about doing that depends on what is necessary. So for me, the medium is inconsequential. Um, not to say that it's not important, but it doesn't go into, it doesn't figure into, you know, whether or not I'm going to do it. What's important to me is, can I tell a good story? And if I can tell a good story, and it's a story that, you know, the people that are interested in me or a story that I'm interested in, then I'm going to tell the story. And if that means I'm going to direct an opera, then damn it, that's what I'm going to do. So not too long ago, because we're, as I'm recording this, it's June, um, sometime in late March, early April. Yeah, late March, probably. I got a call from or an email from Kimberly Douglas, who was the art, who was coming on board as the artistic director. And she said, I want to run this by you first before I talk to someone else, but I really could see you doing this. Tell me what you think. So I took a look and it was this opera. Um, I listened to some of the music and I was like, okay. The hitch was that this was going to be the first time, because I know y'all like, well, cat, where's the black? This was going to be the first time where a black woman was going to play the lead. So this opera has been mounted a couple of times. Um, and there's actually a PBS recorded version of the opera. And so the plan was to stage it with a black woman as the lead. So for me, that was the thing that I cared about the most. And so I didn't know at the time when I agreed to do it, because like I said, you know, I love experimentation that this person, Isabel Everhart, actually existed. So the story about her in sort of short synopsis, short form, is that she was a Swiss woman who, upon a couple of different things that kind of left her in despair, decided to leave her homeland for Algeria. And uh, she dressed as a man because she felt it would be safer and give her more of an opportunity to kind of travel freely. Um, and she was... As I learned, as I learned, you know, later on, her father approved of this. So she was a writer. She loved to write. And so she leaves and finds herself in Algeria. She is enamored by sort of Islam as a faith, um, starts to study and ends up joining a Islamic sect. So she converts to Islam. She falls in love with an Algerian soldier. They have they get married. It's a very tumultuous relationship because she disappears at times. Sometimes she's there, sometimes she's not. And at some point, um, when they come back together, when they reunite, they decide to go live in the desert. Uh, she is apparently known for having had this belief that her life was going to be short. 
she was going to have a short-lived existence. So she did a lot of journaling, but she was in her, and in her writing, she was very critical of the French government and particularly how it was treating Algerians. So there were a lot of things happening with this woman. She's definitely out here on her own, doing her own thing. She, um, she drank, she smoked. She wasn't apparently very good with her money that she made when she was writing, but she had a very critical eye. And so there were Europeans at the time who didn't understand or didn't know, at least from their perspective, what side she was on. So at some point, there's an assassination attempt on her life. And she reunites with her husband, goes into the desert where she dies of a sort of, as I've read it in several places, a flash flood. And I'm using air quotes for that. The desert is a very interesting place. Uh, lots can happen. So there are these natural storms, sandstorms that I think a lot of people are familiar with, but there are also you know, things like the parts of the desert get really cold. And so it's it's not the most, it's a dangerous environment if you don't know what you're doing. And as part of her legacy, once the storm hits and she's, she's died, is when they go and find her body in the wreckage, they also find her journals, which is what is used to piece together her life. And so Mizzy Mazzoli, who apparently is known quite well in the opera world for being very eccentric. And so her approach to opera is very... Um, experimental like this is a chamber opera it's an hour long which is pretty short for an opera and it has an electric guitar in it along with like audio recordings it's musically it's I think it's really kind of I enjoy it I'm not gonna lie I've become a bit obsessed after you know doing this project but that's the story of the woman that this was based on so when I'm asked to come on board and direct it I'm thinking okay all right, cool. Somebody's going to give me a story and I'm going to direct it. I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to the collaboration. Uh, after about the first, or, well, maybe about the first meeting, I realized that we don't necessarily have a story that can encapsulate a black woman's experience in this. The producers, Damascus Theater, Shonda McDill, and also uh, the woman who, Amanda Bond's story, who played the lead, was the person who brought this to Damascus because she's a member of that theater uh, group to say, hey, I want to do this. And so as they begin to kind of make this work or try to make it happen, raise funds, all of these things, four years passes by. And they had already talked to the composer, Mizzy Mazzoli, to find out, you know, in remounting this, could they have carte blanche? So by the time I came on board four years later, there's a sense that she wants people who are interested in, in doing this opera to, to make it their own. So when I tried to imagine Isabel as a black woman, my take on her life with what we knew just was completely different. And um, when I pitched my version of a story, because it was clear that we needed one, uh, they loved it. And so what I did was I took our Isabel, black Isabel, um, and made her the daughter of wealthy black parents in the South. I'm thinking Eatonville, Florida, somewhere around there. And the town is basically destroyed by white insecurity and white rage um, and a massacre, which forces Isabel, who is very intelligent, um, very educated, you know, with dreams and big aspirations to do more, to flee. Uh, in her fleeing, she heads to Detroit. So I set this in about the 1940s, because I really wanted her Muslim interaction to be with uh, the Nation of Islam. So her travel to Detroit has her meet uh, the Nation of Islam, which she comes to through black women. 
and she converts. She takes on, you know, she she becomes a member of, of the Nation of Islam. But because of her, you know, very sort of independent and wild nature, falls in love with a member of the Fruit of Islam, which is forbidden for her in, in this case. Um, and as a result of the trauma of what has happened with her, you know, with her family being lost, with just the racism in general, with the loss of this love that she cannot have, she develops a bit of, you know, uh, a trauma response and flees to the West, flees to the Bay Area, where she settles eventually on, you know, a very in a very isolated part of the West and eventually dies. It is one thing, of course, to talk it out and say, this is what I want to do. It's another thing to actually mount it and then see it happen. So having a six-week lead time, <laughs> um, you know, I like to live on the edge. Uh, we were able to pull this together, and it took a lot of heavy lifting on everyone's part. I flew into Pittsburgh because it was actually mounted at the August Wilson African American Cultural Center, which is a very beautiful um, center in uh, downtown Pittsburgh. And it meant, you know, flying in two weeks before the show, working with, you know, doing rehearsals, working through, you know, working with a sister named Kintara, who's a great choreographer, Fernanda, who was the conductor and all-female orchestra, stage manager, production designer, all black women. It was just, it was this really rich experience. And I had done a video, a YouTube video, um, which was sort of Pittsburgh Chronicles Part 1, where I talk about just the way I was brought out. Um, this was the first time, well, actually, technically the second time I was producing something outside of my home city. The first time was in 2019 when I did something in Lagos for a trip that we organized with LOS Lifestyle. And I created this really cool sort of photograph vignette so people could take really great photographs. And it was really kind of old school Nigerian, 1960s, 70s sort of portrait studio. And that was a lot of fun. This, though, was the first time I was creating something in a theatrical space where I was actually doing it outside of my normal DMV, you know, DC, you know, center. So I was kind of leaving my home to go do this. Didn't necessarily have like a big follow in following in Pittsburgh. So it was really kind of just able to, in a lot of ways, just create without the heaviness of, oh, I hope people like it. I just kind of was in a space where I felt really free to be like, this is an experiment. I absolutely fell in love with the center, fell in love with Shonda McDill. She's an amazing producer. And the way she brought me out uh, was really powerful. There were a lot of lessons. So my takeaways list is my, it's going to be a little bit longer than the normal three. But the way she organized, you know, my trip, you know, just getting out there, being picked up, making sure the Airbnb that I wanted, I got, making sure I had what I need was a really great opportunity to reframe where I am in my creative life and in terms of what I need in order to uh, create well. Mind you, I was also closing out the semester. So I teach between two schools um, and I'm in the English department with my main school at PG. So I had five classes, all writing classes, which means that the amount of stuff that I'm reading is just a lot uh, Mercury was in retrograde, so my timing and like my calendar was off. There was a lot happening in those in those weeks leading in those two weeks leading up. But being in Pittsburgh was helpful. Like I didn't realize how much I needed a uh, change of venue, so I had chosen this Airbnb and didn't realize how big a a view I was going to get. I just I just loved the aesthetics, 
And the way that that particular space functioned really helped me kind of settle into the project. So while I had done a great deal of um, imagining and meditating on what I wanted the story to be, it was cool to be there two weeks before to really get to know the ensemble, to really get to understand, you know, how opera works. I had to learn a couple things around language. I had to learn to read a score to a certain extent because I didn't have a script. So in opera, there's the libretto, which are the words, and then there is the composition, which is the music. The score is the combination of both of them. And Mizzy Mazzoli, to her credit, is non-traditional in a lot of ways. So the way her operas work, they're not easy to sing. (laughs) They're just not. And I learned a lot in the process of listening to rehearsals and all of these things and watching the vocalists and the and the instru- and the and the, uh, and the and the orchestra sort of come together. It was a really interesting blend of expertise and you know um, knowledge, just trying to come together. Because the timeline for this, of course, was ridiculously small. Like when we think about how long it takes to mount a production, six weeks is not nearly enough to do everything that we did. But we're black women, so we made it work. And as we got closer, you know, to the date, I mean, I had a hand in everything from the costumes to the prop selection. You know, I was able to make requests around the staging that had already um, been created. So um, I had no say in the, the overall view, but I definitely was able to kind of use some of my ideas around how I wanted to move the scenes along. I got to work with Alicia Wormsley, who was the uh, the filmmaker who helped with the visual. So there was a visual component that really helped to tell the story. And Alicia Wormsley is just brilliant. And so um, once I got a chance to sit down with her and say, this is what I want to do, some of the things that she'd already produced, she went back and reworked. So there was this collective build of the show. And when I released myself from sort of the expectations that you would normally, I think, put on yourself in terms of producing... Um, and and hope people like it, all of that stuff, and just kind of sat in the work. I kind of got lost in the process. And it was one of the first times I can honestly say that I've been in a situation where I was able to be the visionary that I am and have people help execute that vision. So normally I'm the visionary, um, the person having, I'm the administrator, I'm out here, you know, driving around trying to find the props. I'm doing all of this work. And it pulls on the creative aspect. So there are always, you know, hard stops in my brain around how much more I can do because I've been, you know, sourcing something for like two or three hours or working or looking at a font and trying to understand why I don't like the font. So being able to turn that over, having an artistic director, having a producer um, and having an understanding that we were working in ways that were probably not traditional for theater, but made sense for us. That was a really big way that I was able to kind of see myself in the production, like see how my brain, you know, works and what was going on. And I appreciated that. There were also moments where there was, you know, pushback around, excuse me, what is traditionally done versus what is not traditionally done. And I came away with a a real understanding that, you know, a lot of what is traditionally done is steeped in a very westernized white European understanding of what is linear. And that's cute, but if you're not a white European Western linear thinker or creative, how does this work then? You know, the needs that I have as a black woman, a Nigerian 
American woman who also teaches and has these big concepts in her head, you know, I work a little differently than, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a traditional theater person. And so coming into that space, I found myself at times feeling constrained by the way in which things were getting done because sometimes it felt like it was moving too slow. Sometimes it felt like it was not moving at all. Sometimes it felt like, okay, you know, I need to be careful here, you know, with my tone and making sure that everyone feels comfortable at the same time. I'm not seeing what I need. So it challenged me a great deal. And I definitely appreciated those challenges because what came out of it was a really great first step in terms of proof of concept to prove that this story has legs, um, being able to show it to people and having folks react, watching the audience members react to some of the things that they were seeing. That was really exciting. Initially, there were supposed to be three shows, but because, you know, the producer wanted to make space for a young um, Black opera singer who needed space, we reduced it to two so that the sister could have her recital um, in the space, which was, you know, which is one of the things I just love about the way, you know, we as Black women sometimes are able to move where we can. We're very giving. So it's not just us. It's not just me benefiting, but everyone's benefiting. So there were these moments of complete and utter appreciation for the gift of resources. And then there were these moments where I even had to sit down and look at myself and be like, oh my God, you're really good at this in terms of the way you're thinking about the story, um, the way you're creating a story to make this make sense. I didn't want our Isabel to just be a chocolate dipped Barbie. It didn't make sense for me that this black woman was going all the way to Algeria to experience Islam when there is a whole movement involving Islam in the United States as early as the 1940s. I also wanted to reflect on the fact that at the time the Nation of Islam comes into being, it is offering Black Americans an opportunity to connect with God through a non-Christian source. It's also an opportunity for Black Americans to see themselves fully realized in a way that the way that Christianity was sort of being used and pushed and pulled didn't often, you know, give. So when you think about the charitable turn your other cheek perspective of Christianity, you know, buttressed up against this very singular understanding in Islam that no one gets to disrespect you. Uh, you have options now as a black person that maybe that you didn't have prior to 1940, um, and at least in an organized way. And I think that the nation of Islam that creates a Malcolm X that pulls him out of this this sort of spiral of despair, the nation of Islam, the idealized version that he fell in love with. I wanted to bring that to bear. And so there's amazing footage of nation of Islam, archival footage where you see the women in the white and you see the men in their sort of very stylized suits in the FOI, the fruit of Islam drills. And so it's just a really beautiful way of being. When you're thinking about what Black people need at that time, this has given them an option. While there were many that found comfort in Christianity, because I'm not suggesting that the Christianity that is used to enslave you know, Black folks is the same Christianity that Black folks are practicing. I think that there is another version of Christianity that is created by enslaved people um, and by free Black people that keeps them fortified and gives them joy. But it also 
is a religion that is largely practiced um, at the time and is the religion that is used to, you know, create the basis for some of the most destructive aspects of this country. So being able to highlight Islam through the Nation of Islam was important to me. And to be honest with you, I didn't know how people were going to receive it um, because what I was doing in a lot of ways was asking folks to think past, you know, their thoughts of, of Louis Farrakhan because people tend to just reduce the Nation of Islam to Louis Farrakhan as if it isn't a long-standing, you know, religious organization that has existed for decades. So I really wanted there to be a moment where we could sort of revel in the beauty of what the Nation of Islam was able to do. And so the fact that everybody was on board was super cool. The ensemble, which was not predominantly, um, there was a black lead, but there were maybe three other black women who were part of the ensemble who sang and who also helped with the acting. And so being able to pull them out of this predominantly white ensemble in this way was also a way that um, was something I felt really good about, I should say. While Isabel Urban Hart in real life is going through men to enter into Islam, when we think about her path, I really wanted to highlight the importance of black women in religious spaces. And so I was able to do that in a way that just really made me feel good. And then the costuming, ugh, you know, Demetria Bocelli was just amazing. Like she was able to hone in on what I was thinking about and envisioning for the looks. And she and her team, the hair, the makeup, the accessories, it was all so very, very powerful. And so it was a dope moment, but it was a moment that it took me a minute to get to only because at some point in the midst of everything that's happening, you know, I got school, I'm shutting down, I'm trying to, you know, finish grading papers and I'm, you know, doing this, I'm away from home. I have to get this work done. And so on Saturday morning, which was the day of, we had two performances, a 2 p.m. and a 7 p.m. So we had a matinee and a, a 7 p.m. showing. I think at that point it hit me what I was doing, what I was working on and how big of a deal, at least for me, this project had become because a lot of me went into the story. Like in terms of, while it's not, I don't necessarily identify with the story I created. I felt like I'd created something that black women, particularly black women from America, North America, United States of America, could see, if not themselves, their mother, their grandmothers in. And so that part there was just, I woke up and I was just overwhelmed with like gratitude and awe. And it was a completely emotional hour and a half of me could not stop crying. It was really, when I think back now, it's, I chuckle because I was really a mess, but I think I woke up, I got dressed and I called a few friends because I felt something was bubbling up and nobody was available. <laughs> And it wasn't anybody's fault. It's just, you know, it just, it just happened that way. And I had to call, I didn't have to, but I chose to call the artistic director. And I'm telling this story and I'm being transparent because I think it's important for people to understand, regardless of what you see on the front end, there are moments where I'm a complete mess. And so I, um, yeah, I called, I called Kimberly. And I don't know, I think one day I'll interview her about that particular project because 
I think it'd be better for her to talk about what it was like to, to be on the receiving end of me bawling in the phone. But I was literally, I could not stop crying. And I couldn't tell what I was like crying about. I just knew that all of the emotions that I had tucked away so I could get this done were sort of bubbling to the surface. And I think there was a moment of grief uh, only because I felt like yet again, I'm doing something that I never thought I would do. Um, something that's really sort of taking me further along this artistic road. And my mother is not physically here to witness it. I mean, she was there knocking things around, moving people out of the way and definitely holding up this big shield of protection. But just, you know, I, I imagine like if physically she were here and I was the person that I am now, because I sometimes don't think that that would have happened, to be honest with you. And I think I've spoken about this um, in previous uh, podcast episodes. But if there's a world where I am this creative version of myself and my mother is alive and she's witnessing some of these things, her gele and her outfit would have been so ridiculously amazing that we would have had to sit her in a place where she wouldn't block anybody. Like the amount of pride that she would have rolled with would have been like she would have just she would have just been so proud. And so there is a way that there's a moment in that moment in that moment of moments where some of it is just, you know, damn, I wish mom could like physically be here to see this. Um, one friend was able to come up, Maria Luz. So um, I thanked her already in the newsletter, but I wanted to thank her on this recording because it meant a lot to me to have a familiar face. And there were actually there was another sister, Dorinia, who came up to support us uh than that. It was just good to see, to have one or two familiar faces in the audience. It really, really helped because it is important to understand the gravity of what you're doing sometimes when you've done it in terms of adding to the conversation. Nothing that we're doing, even if only a few people know about it, is lost. It's not It's not inconsequential. I, I'm one of those people that believe that if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, that it does still make a sound. And so everything you do has consequence, has matter. And so, yeah, it was it was a great moment. I learned a lot about myself in terms of not only how I work and how I think, but how I want to work and how I want to create moving forward. Um, one of the things that I did when I finally, when I got back home was that I put down, I created a writer for myself, a personal writer, because to the credit of, you know, the producer and, you know, how they organized things. A lot of things that I would never have thought to ask for, I was given in terms of just the ease with which I was able to come in. I don't think people realize sometimes that the ease with which you travel when you have to go somewhere to work makes a huge difference, at least for me, and how, you know, that entry sets the tone, I think, for how, you know, you'll approach the entire project. So being able to come in in a way that was restful and easy, even though there were like a few little hiccups, they were smoothed really quickly. And it, I was able to, you know, get in and and rest and like come into rehearsal really charged. And it was it was good. And, you know, they're always going to be blips and blaps in terms of, you know, when you're working with people across different sections of the production and different styles of doing things. It does, it's, you're going to bump heads. It's an, it's a natural occurrence. That's not, I don't think that, that's not, that you can't really avoid that. I think how you handle things is the part that really matters. I think 
what intention you bring to the project. I think that's what really matters. And understanding where the fits work and where they don't is also really what matters. And so even me understanding moving forward, my style of directing, you know, requires a certain amount of tea, <laughs> like simple things like a teapot, you know, just having hot water at all times makes a difference, you know, um, being able to, I one of the other things that I didn't realize that I probably should have thought about was a working area that was not public. So we had this really great rehearsal space. Um, so I would come in a little early and work from there, but I really probably should have thought about, hey, can I get a, a temporary office where I don't have to be in the, in the sort of an open space? So there were there were some things there that made me realize, hey, you need a own, your own personal rider moving forward. It also, I think, helps with contract negotiations. The contract that I worked, that I was given for this particular project was really well articulated and it was very clear and I thought it was very fair. And I want to say that part of the reason why the contract was so well done is because both the producer and the artistic director were very intentional, particularly because they are black women and how they were managing and treating other black women. And so that was something that I thought was really, really important. Like that contract for me has now become a measuring stick. So I'm using that now moving forward with other opportunities that are presenting themselves where I'm saying, well, if I'm not getting at least this, I'm not doing it uh, because I'm going to need these things. And so the advocating for self is important, but working with people who know how to advocate for you is also important. Now, interestingly enough, I'm going to make a slight left turn here. I am currently in Amsterdam as I'm recording this. I have been wanting to get back into my episodes, but I really realized that I needed a minute. Uh, a lot has happened and there'll be an episode where I tell you everything has gone down. Um, and some, some, not bad things, but just my brain was just being occupied by too many ideas. But technically two or three days ago, I was in Rotterdam, which is a different city, for a, a conversation that was happening so I could sort of, you know, support and bear witness. And there was a moment where I was called in to kind of hold space for the sister who was having a really hard time in the moment around fair treatment. One of the conversations that was had at this conference was around how as Black creatives, you can show up in a way that is in line, in, in alignment with you know, what it means to support black artists. And some things were said, you know, in terms of the Q&A, where people were sort of offering up where they thought uh, different venues were holding space in a way that was effective for black artists. And I think the sister just didn't agree because of her past experiences. And so she was visibly upset. And I think she was even shocked that she was as upset as she was, because I think we've reached a point in the human timeline, particularly in this iteration not so much, and I like the way this brother who was on the panel said it, not post-COVID, but post-lockdown, post-shutdown, where a lot of people's shit is just coming to the surface. I don't I don't think I'm the only one that notices that people are not as nice as they could be. Tempers are really short. Folks are out here really not being as kind to each other as you would hope, considering the fact that we just went through like a massive shutdown and people died and all of these other things. So... It's been really crazy that folks are treating each other so poorly. And so, 
you know, we had this really great conversation. And one of the things I said to her is that maybe what you need is someone to advocate for you. Sometimes when you are the creative and you're in direct contact with an institution or the people that are paying you, sometimes your concerns are not being treated right because they're talking directly to you. Sometimes you need an advocate. And I, and I say all that to say that I think that even before I took on this project, I was being advocated for in a way that I didn't even realize I was being advocated for. So that me coming in felt really good and felt really intentional. And I really, really appreciated it. So with that, that's my story. That is how I ended up directing an opera. It goes back to a lot of the things that I've been saying over the course of my creative life, that it's really important that your social capital is well done, that you treat people right, that you are transparent in a lot of ways so that people understand all of the ways that you want to operate. I think that Kimberly being able to see me as a director of this means that she's seeing me past sometimes what I'm even showing her. Like she really gets my capability. And, you know, even sort of post-show, we've had a couple of just moments where we've just been so proud of each other and proud of what we were able to accomplish as a group because she said to me recently, she's like, I knew you were going to bring something to the table that was going to create a story that was really going to work. And then the other piece to this now is that, you know, one of the things that we are researching is if the version that I've created along with Alicia's visuals can be packaged up as possibly sort of a blueprint for how to tell the story with the black lead and not understanding opera in its full extent, having folks who are black opera singers who are part of the ensemble say, being able to play this role, being able to be you, you know, part of an opera where you don't have to always play background has been really important. So hopefully this is something that other um, black opera singers can use. So yeah, it's a powerful moment. I'm feeling really good. As far as the takeaways, you know, I think the big thing is for those of us that are moving in this creative way, check the contracts, think about what you need. So think about what you need to function well. And I'm learning that nothing is too small of an ask or too big of an ask. You can always just ask. They say no, they say no. And if there's a way to negotiate, then do that. But, you know, don't be ashamed of what it is you need to feel safe and comfortable so that you can do what it is you came to do. I think a second takeaway is that it's good to get out of your backyard. As always, you know, travel is a big part of who I am. And I think going to other places to try your hand, to work with people who are not part of your network, to sort of build together um, with a new group of people always feels good. And I think the third takeaway for me on this trip was vulnerability. I had to be really vulnerable about moments that I just, where I wasn't feeling comfortable. And normally I'm not that open about those things. I just go talk to my my besties and I just, you know, I work through it and then I go back out there. But there were moments where I just was having a moment and I was, I felt comfortable, but I also knew I needed to say, I need to say how I was feeling. And so that vulnerability piece was really important, I think, for this one, because it helped me reflect the brilliance back to the people I was working with. Um, Shonda and I would have these amazing post-rehearsal conversations and, you know, we were all learning a lot about each other and what we bring to the table. And so now I consider her one of my girls. Like, you know, I'm trying to get her to come to D.C. and, you know, do some things as well because she's brilliant in the way that she thinks about things like funding. And I'm hoping to interview her soon about that because I think she's got some really 
important and progressive ways of thinking about black creativity and how it gets funded. So yeah, those are my big takeaways. Um, it feels good to, to get this out. I've been wanting to sit and record for a while and been stuck in my head about what it's going to sound like because I'm not in the studio, but you know what? I think that, uh, this was a good one. So thank you all for listening. I appreciate you for listening. I, you know, once again, sometimes I'm in awe at the number of people that listen. Uh, I, I appreciate the, the comments. I appreciate the, the kudos. I appreciate the feedback. Um, it means a lot. So until next time, I'm going to be out because I got this culture, you know, it's not going to make itself. Take care, everyone, and stay tuned. There are more episodes on the way. Bye-bye. for listening it means a lot to me just wanted to let you know that cat's corner the podcast is produced by little sosa productions and edited by aileen andrada of your pod but if you'd like to follow us you can check me out at cat's corner co k-a-t-s-k-o-r-n-e-r-c-o on all platforms and lsp underscore on the go tune in next time for another edition as always we appreciate your listen don't forget to like and subscribe so that you can be updated as new podcasts come in Take care.